From WPVMLP in Asheville, it's the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Jonathan Ammons. Catherine Campbell is away sick this month. Please keep her in your thoughts. I'm coming to you today from my car. And actually, I'll be hosting most of the show from my car. I've been driving around for the past two weeks since the lockdown started and talking to people that have been affected by this that I see on the street. Business owners, bartenders, musicians, whoever. This is the first episode of the season, and we were supposed to be coming to you from Birmingham, Alabama at the Southern Foodways Alliance Symposium, where we were going to meet and talk to a lot of really amazing and wonderful pioneers in the food world. But that didn't happen. And the way we do our show can't happen anymore. So we're having to adapt in the same way a lot of you are in your jobs. But we figured it would be a good time to check in with people and hear their stories and hear what they're going through and get some advice on how to move forward. But before we get into all of that, let's start out with some music, because that's how we always do this. So uh, here's the latest from Clem Snide. Shedding the skin of this life It said There is a vastness that can't be contained Or described as a thought in the flesh of our brain It's everything, everywhere Future and past Dissolving together in eternal flash so much his hand seemed to pass through whatever it touched and the credits that rolled listed all of God's names as images floated away from their frames from their frames did you know these were Roger Ebert's dying words Did you know these were Roger Ebert's dying words? 
it's all an elaborate hoax it's all an elaborate hoax all right here we go on another of these Daily drives. Going through town, seeing what we see, and uh, seeing who we can run into and talk to. This has become my new routine. At a different time every day, I grab my field recorder, get in my car, and I drive around town. If I run into someone who might have something interesting to say, I stick my microphone out the window and I talk to them. That's gotten a little harder to do each day since North Carolina declared a state of emergency. Every day there are less and less people on the sidewalks, less and less businesses open, less cars on the street. I'm on my way to Eater Rhine Distilling because I hear that in addition to selling their fantastic Amaro and Fernet curbside, They've started handing out free sanitizer that they are distilling on site. How's it going? Good. Mind if I talk to you for the radio? Brett's back here. Oh yeah? Is he? Yeah. Owner yeah. <laughs> and distiller, Rhett Murphy. Uh, mostly what we're doing is giving away free for the community uh, hand sanitizer that we've been able to make here at the distillery. Yeah, how are you making it? We're able to make it here because we use a lot of ethanol here, and so we um, are just making a mixture of, um, uh, right now it's 70% ethanol and water and some moisturizers and a couple of other ingredients just to make it nice and legal. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it's, I mean, most people can't just use a vodka as a... No, you cannot. You could, um, you know, it has to get, after being mixed down, to minimum of 60% alcohol. That's 120 proof. And we're staying above 65 and now making it at 70%, so 140 proof, just to be extra sure. Um, so it's even the Everclear that you can get around here. You can't mix much water with it yeah. to um, turn it into sand. Or uh, an emollient or anything that would moisturize. Um, you would get below the, the 65%. Huh. All right. Well, yes. thanks for the public service, yo. Yes. And it's all legal now. Um, so the FDA and the TTB have um, waived the regulations discerning uh, distilleries not making non-beverage alcohol. And um, so we, we didn't have a permit to do this, but um, now, now they're sort of looking... They're saying it's legal for us to do it because the need Now is, you don't need a permit. Yes. Now we don't need a permit. Awesome. Um, That's great. And, yeah, every Monday and Wednesday we'll be here 2 to 6 unless something changes and they tell us we can't be. Um, we're also selling bottles and gift cards, and we've got some our um, really great Amari here, and we've got some great vermouth and wine and vodka and... Um, some other stuff, and we're selling gift cards if the if folks are not inclined to imbibe at the moment. 
Restaurants and breweries are still doing curbside service and takeout like Eater Rhine. But other than that, the city has become a ghost town. Making the loop around downtown, I run into Jason Landers, one of the powers that be at Strada Italiano, a local Italian joint. What's up, Jonathan? Oh, driving around making the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour updates on how things are happening downtown. <laughs> how are you guys doing? Well, we've been handling some takeout, but, you know, that's yeah. about it. Yeah. yeah. And not, not a ton of that, but some. When did you shut it down when they made the mandate? We, we actually did it a couple days before because we kind of saw the routing on the wall and we didn't want to seem like the greedy ones trying to stay open. Kind of yeah. Thing. Yeah. For sure. So so we uh, we just went ahead and Anthony made the call to go ahead and go to takeout only um, Monday. We did that, so. Okay. How's that been going? How's Is, what? How's that been going? Well, we, we're getting some business, not not nearly as much as we would like or really need, but right. at least there's some cash flow. Bit of a drop in the bucket. Yeah. 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 So, uh, of course, staff's all laid off now at this point. Yeah. Have they been able to get unemployment so far? Yes. Awesome. Or at least we're starting to see that they've, they've applied and we're getting letters, confirmation letters, things like okay. that. Okay. So, and uh, that's happening quickly? It seems to be, yes. Good. Okay, good. Yeah, we've got, had a few apply for food stamps as well. Yeah. yeah I've seen, we've seen some of those. Wow. So, yeah, it's, that's, that's, that's about the size of it. And as far as I can tell, everybody's pretty much the same boat. Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, just looking around, I'm like, man, that's got to be tough just trying to get by on to-go orders. Yeah, I, I think a few places have decided it's not even worth the, the effort. We're yeah. Getting, we're getting enough flow that it's like we're just going to stick with it for a while. But. What are the people mostly getting? Just pizzas and stuff? Or what's... Um, a lot of pizza, a lot of pasta. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, we, but we've done some of our higher end stuff too, like our lime ragu and our duck. Good. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's amazing that you're even offering the whole menu. I guess you have to until you run out of. That that's goods. part of the idea too. Is try and move what we can move. And, you know. Yeah. It goes bad. For sure. Freeze everything. We can get get in the freezers. You know. For sure. Yeah. Good. Well, good luck. Remo remove the valuables. Yeah. <laughs> Just in case. <laughs> remove, remove a lot of the product that we're not selling. So. Yeah. Well, good luck, man. I hope Thank it, you. You too. I hope you all weather this well. Yes. I'm sure. I'm sure you will. Yes. Yeah. Well, goodbye. So. Word. Yeah. We're. We're thankfully we're sitting a little better than a lot of places. I think. Yeah. So. Good. Strata isn't the only restaurant fighting against the waves of this lockdown. In fact, as we were recording this episode, the county issued a stay-at-home order, forcing even more businesses to shutter. You know, just driving through town, you can kind of see the toll. That this is taking on everything. Everything's closed. The things that are not are restaurants just allowing takeout. They have little booths set up at their front door. Um, but the the most disconcerting part is as you just look at all this stuff and realize that everyone's income is cut in half or worse. There's there's a ripple effect going on, and it's not just a restaurant losing money, it's the advertising that they pay to local newspapers. It's not just a band being canceled, it's that venue not being able to support a local radio station. It's all of that money is just cinched up and now everyone's just sitting on their nests. That's, that's crippling for an entire community, for, for all of that money to stop changing hands. It's, 
it really censures the media, it censures everything that can happen in your, in your community. And I think we're just starting to see that take effect. This week, the Asheville Alt-Weekly Mountain Express announced that they'd laid off seven staffers, including longtime veterans like A&E editor Allie Marshall, who'd been with the paper for over 17 years. It's not a secret that print papers have been struggling for decades, but the calls in the newsroom of nearly every local news agency become particularly more alarming in light of recent events. In the middle of emergencies like this one, we need them now more than ever. I talked with Mountain Express Managing Editor Virginia Daffron and Development Coordinator Laura Hackett yesterday about everything, just as news of the shelter-in-place order was hitting the news wire. Oh, and full disclosure, I wrote for Mountain Express for seven years. The virus started to impact Mountain Express right as the very first closures were occurring. Uh, And I think our coverage, we identified through public meetings um, from the beginning of uh, hearing updates from the County Board of Commissioners and also Asheville City Council and included that in our reporting on those bodies. But I think it was really when we started to hear some uh, cancellation requirements and um, you know an increase in all the efforts to flatten the curve that it really became a major topic of our coverage. And then at the same time, we saw uh, certainly of course, as just as you would expect, if events are not able to take place, if restaurants and bars are not able to provide dine-in service, then obviously those businesses don't have funds available for advertising that they had committed to and planned. Right. Um, so we had to shift our thinking very quickly on all the coverage plans that we may have made going forward for a month or so of the weekly, you know, having written extensively for Express that we plan very far in advance. Yeah. So a lot of that had to shift very quickly. So we were scheduled to do this interview, I guess, the week that, or the, or the day that you guys had the, that the, that the whip came down, as one might, might say. Oh my. But, uh, <laughs> I, I did not say, hear any whip cracks. No, but, uh, I, I wouldn't say it that way. But yes, that's right. That was on Friday. Yeah. Um, well, you know, the, the economics of it are pretty clear. If 100% of community life basically stops and we're a, a publication that's supported by advertising that largely revolves around events and happenings and culture and things to do in in Asheville it, we definitely saw half of our revenue drop away immediately so yeah there was and it was clear from the beginning as well that this wasn't likely to be a very short-term interruption right so it was just obvious that if we lost half of our revenue we would need to reduce our our staffing and the way we tried to do that was to spread it evenly across the company to include our advertising department, our design department, uh, our IT department, and also the editorial department. Yeah. 
Um, how many people total did this affect? Seven. Seven. Wow. And everyone who remains at the company has either taken a pay cut, a reduction in hours, or both. Mm. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how y'all decide who to let go and who who to keep. How how does that get prioritized? What's that process look like for the paper? Yeah, of course, we really can't talk about that. Um, it wouldn't be respectful to the, to any of our team members, but it was, a, as you would imagine, just terribly difficult to make those choices. And, and everyone who was laid off, um, you know, they were making huge contributions and they were important to the paper and important to the community. Um, I've been certainly hearing the grief um, that's been expressed online um, about some of the editorial layoffs. Those are the people that people know in the community, but I mean, you know, we have just as much grief about folks we lost in advertising and in our design department. Yeah. They're equally critical. For sure. Maybe you should talk a little about how uh, Alt Weekly like this is structured, how it's funded, how this type of thing impacts this type of event impacts it because it is largely it's ad based, right? Right, right. Over the years, advertising revenue hasn't it, it's gone down because there's lots more choices and people need to advertise in a lot more places. Twenty five years ago, we, you know, we were one of the only gangs in town, but that's not the case anymore. So we've already been diversifying. We have a number of specialty publications um, that we put out, our Eats and Drinks Guide, our Best of WNC Guide, um, the uh, Go Local Guide. So those bring in revenue that has helped support the core newspaper product, as well as advertising revenue. And then we rolled out um, the reader support program to further diversify and um, sustain the news product. I mean, the news product is what we love and what we're committed to. So we were already in a position of working very, very hard to try to find ways to fund that. Uh, our publisher, Jeff Bogues, has been very clear with us. Um, we're not going anywhere. We're gonna continue to print the paper and we're gonna find a way. That was Virginia Daffron the managing editor of the Mountain Express. You're listening to the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. Huntington 
Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. For 41 years, The Marketplace has been a hub for locally grown food farmed by our neighbors. While the restaurant may be closed due to the coronavirus lockdown, gift cards are still available through their webpage or through AshevilleStrong.com. Cruising through downtown, it's like a scene from some apocalyptic film. The streets are mostly empty. The majority of cars are cop cars or some kind of delivery vehicle. Most of the noise is coming from construction vehicles, which seem to be finding a way to busy themselves. In a mostly abandoned sidewalk, I run into Alan Clark, a manager at Cucina 24, one of Asheville's favorite dining joints. They've been trying to get by on takeout like a lot of other places in town. How are things at Cucina? Um, they're, we're doing okay. I mean, it's, yeah. um, we're considering we're pretty busy. I mean, it's not like if we were open as normal, but right. we're, you know, um, we're also, we're not trying to make a profit off of takeout. You right. know, the, all of the money is just going to the staff that yeah. we had to lay off. Um, I'm unemployed myself, so right. I'm just, you know, working pro bono and just trying to help. So, wow, um, it's weird. I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's yeah. weird times. Yeah, man. No, and has has it been busy? Like, what's the turnout yeah. been like? I mean, it, it it's busy for what we can do. I mean, basically, most days it's just one person and Brian. Yeah. You know? Um, so, it you know, it can be a lot for, sp- particularly Brian. You yeah. Know, with, you know, cooking when, you know, takeout orders are just coming in. Um, for sure. But it's been good. I mean, hopefully, you know, and the idea is, you know, f- after, you know, everyone, like, we're trying to do this to just pay the staff, and then after everyone is, is paid, um... You know, hopefully he doesn't have to take out, you know, a huge loan to reopen. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not like he had savings right. or anything, you know. Right. So, or most restaurants don't. I mean, For sure. Yeah. yeah. No, it's kind of a hand-to-mouth operation yeah. to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. Have you been holding up? Pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Not bad. I mean, um, filed for unemployment. Yeah. Um, so hopefully the stimulus... Have you gotten you know, anything yet? Not yet, no. Yeah. Have you heard from them at all? Um, I... So a few days ago, I you know, the, I got the email to where you go in and answer all the questions like, are you available to work? Are you able to work? All those questions. And so hopefully soon I'll get something. Yeah. You know. Okay. Just up the block, I spot Gracie Lane, a country and honky-tonk singer in the area. I wonder how the music industry is suffering here over this. Gracie? Hi. Hey, what's up? How are you? Good, how are you? Good. Just getting our CSA from Evan. Oh, nice. Yeah. You want to talk to me for the radio real quick? Sure. Yeah. Come here. (laughs) (laughs) How is this affecting struggling musicians? Um, I personally had three gigs canceled. Oh my God. Um, the outreach online Hang is on, never. Hang on, right over here. So yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was gonna say the outreach and engagement online is never what you hope it would be. It's never the strong suit for reaching fans or spreading yeah. music. Um, I think live music is the most effective way to do that. Yeah. So I think a lot of us right now are just. Um, I mean, I'm writing a little bit more. I wasn't writing before, so I think the slowdown is good for that. Yeah. Um, you know, 
money-wise, I know a lot of the people that are more deeply affected than I am, just because they do that solely. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's a little depressing. I think it's just, everyone's just, like, ready to get back out there. Yeah, did you have a bunch of gigs canceled and stuff? I had three gigs canceled. Oof. Which is, I mean, for March, so, you yeah. know. Yeah. yeah. And that's... Summer. That's a lot. You doing, like, living room shows or anything like that? Like, streaming shows or anything? I did a live stream. I'll probably... I did it through Instagram. Um, I'll probably do one through Facebook and... Yeah. Hopefully get a bigger reach with that. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Let, let me know. I'll, I'll plug it, yo. All right. Bye. Good luck. Good to see you. Thanks. You too. For just about all of us in nearly every industry, we're all being hit by this shutdown. And we're all trying to figure out the best way to manage it. How can we still support our neighbors while being isolated? How can we make money without compromising our own lives? Finding answers to those kinds of questions can be hard particularly when the internet and social media is swarming with misinformation and people trying to take advantage of the situation to benefit themselves or their ideology. I called up my friend Sam Thielman in New York City for our podcast to get some perspective. Sam is an editor at the Tao Center and a regular contributor to The Guardian, NBC News, and Talking Points Memo. I wanted to know the best ways of distinguishing between fact and fabrication. Let's talk about sourcing information sure. in an era of panic, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's quite difficult. Um, it's especially difficult because the media has fallen down on the job so hard during this particular crisis. Um, you had all this fear-mongering from the right right before it started, and then everybody on the left was resp- – I mean, not, not the left, I'm sorry. You had all this fear-mongering among conservative media, which is not real news by and large. And then the normal media reacted to that by publishing things like, oh, it's not even as bad as the flu. And then as soon as it became clear that the Trump administration wasn't doing anything to mitigate this and was just sort of hoping that they could not – address it and that keep people and keep people from getting tested, um, those roles like flipped and you had conservative media saying, oh, it's, uh, you know, our dear leader is doing everything. There's power to stop this virus, which isn't even going to be that bad. It's not as bad as the flu. And then you had, um, you know, real media saying, oh, this is all like, this is a huge disaster. This is a gigantic public health failing. Yeah. Um, in a way that makes sense because there have been pandemics that have been handled much better than this by previous administrations. Obama's response to H1N1 was um, extremely like farsighted and rapid and um, I think kept a lot of people from dying, even though that was a terrible plague that killed like a – I think it killed like a million people over 10 years. Wow. Uh, but again, that's over 10 years. Um, this is going to kill a lot of people a lot quicker. Um, yeah. But uh, it's um, I think now there's a lot there's a concerted effort to parse this information by um, by good actors, by um, by Johns Hopkins University. Um, I love The New York Times's page. I feel like they're doing a good job. Um, there's a website called covidtracking.com that's just raw data from all of these um, uh, states, uh, um, public health um, divisions, and the yeah. data is graded 
like they say, you know, this is this is we give we give them an A for transparency or a D for transparency or huh. whatever. Um, so we still have one really big problem, which is we don't have a denominator in the number of cases. Um, you know, we have the number of people. We 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 have like a number of established cases, but we don't know out of how many, because it's not clear who's being tested. It's not clear why they're being tested, and we don't have it's. They're not being sampled by anything. Yeah. By you know, in it's not it's not like they're testing every fifth person in the phone book. Right. Um. So it's really hard to tell how many people have this. Um. I think generally going to um. And I mean, I'm a little biased here because I work for a university, but I, I've been really thrilled to see universities stepping up and um, trying to provide not just good information, but good information communicated like effectively and dryly and well. Um, yeah. I don't know if you've seen it. So the Johns Hopkins page is really good. And then um, uh, the Lancet, which is a, a medical journal um, published in the UK, um, now has like a big page devoted to coronavirus and with people like John Cornyn, um, the center for Texas going on television and telling everybody that he thinks that coronavirus happened because Chinese people eat bats. Um, it's really useful to have somebody who can be like, actually, that's not even how zoonotic diseases work like it probably did originate in bats but it's not from eating them it's from something that like got into bat guano like a pig or something that got into bat guano and then like you know came too close to a human and sneezed on it or something he sneezed on him or something like there's, there's all kinds of like um useful information that I actually do find kind of calming to read because I just feel like the more I know, the better prepared I am. Yeah. That may be an illusion. If you know a meteor is going to, you know, crash into Brooklyn tomorrow, there's not a whole lot you can do <laughs> besides try to try to get on one of the trains. But um, it's uh, it does help me prepare myself at least. Um, How would you define? I mean, like we're talking about what is good data and what what is what is not. Um, how would you yeah. how would you square that difference? How can how can the average layman recognize bad data or bad information or 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 bad news? Yeah, um, I mean it's very hard. I think, and I I don't do it right every time either. Um, we actually have a guide to open source uh, intelligence which is what spy agencies call this stuff uh, on the Tau Center's website that I highly recommend. I'll send you a link. Um, but it's uh, it's um, one of our guys who um, was an investigative reporter for Newsweek for a long time, wrote it up for us, and it's really good. Um, but one of the things that is, you know, it's, it's always worth checking the source, and it's always worth checking the source's credentials because sometimes you'll see people who will say, I am a, like, I have a doctorate, and I think that buying bleach and then rubbing it on all your food is going to prevent you from getting coronavirus. You should probably ask what that person's doctorate is in <laughs> and, and where it where it came from and when they got it. <laughs> right. Um, so th there's uh, like there there was a guy at the um, 
at the Federalist who wrote the other day that he thought we should have chicken pox parties style things and and, and do controlled infections of coronavirus. Oh my God. Um, and he he well, but he was an MD is the thing. He's an MD. He his his license had lapsed and he wasn't allowed to practice medicine. But he you know I can certainly see people you know who are at least trying to do that much information verification scrolling to the bottom of the page and being like hmm, well he says he's a doctor. Um, yeah. But uh, it's hard. It, I think generally speaking, you want to pay attention to corrections. Um, you want to, you want to look for places that are saying that have like changed their tune and, and sort of see whether or not they admit making a mistake in the first place. Right. That is a real, that is always a mark of a good institution. Um, because I mean, I they're, think they're being the... accountable for it. They're actually showing right. you that they did the wrong thing and that they owned up to it instead of just removing it from their page. Yeah, and they have a, and they have sort of a. I mean, this is why um, scientific data and modeling is is um, useful. Is that there's a process in place for what to do when your model blows up or when your, um, you know, y- you turn out to have like not carried the two. Like there's a there there are steps you go through because it's admitted that everybody makes mistakes and that we're you know no different than anyone else and that we're going to make mistakes too. So I think that's always a good way to vet um, a publication is do they publish corrections? Um, but I also think that like in terms of fast moving information, just slow down. That's the only that's the only piece of advice I can give you that there will never be, there's no addendum to. Yeah. Like just just like. If you see that email from your grandmother, if you see that Facebook post from your racist friend from high school, if you see that, you know, article that looks too good to be true in a magazine that you kind of don't tell people you read, like, just take a minute and, like, think about the thing that you want most to be true from the piece and then see if you can find somebody else saying it in a way that is less attractive to you. And if you can, then it's probably true. Um, (laughs) (laughs) it's hard to want things to be true. I mean, I kind of think that that's what, what got us here. Yeah. You know, we, I I think one reason people refuse to take this seriously for so long is that it's, it's uh, unimaginable. Yeah. But just because it's unimaginable doesn't mean it can't happen. That that is a hard lesson to learn. Um, it's a reason that the sciences tend to be better at times like this than they are, you know, dealing with big social structural problems, is because they're not concerned with what has happened before necessarily. They're concerned with what is possible. Yeah, and um, we're discovering what the limits of the possible are at the moment. <laughs> yeah, and new things happen all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, especially in an age of constant inundation on social media, like it's just hard to to parse those things out for a lot of people. And I think what do you say to people that are like, I mean, there's a general distrust of the media right now. And I use that term, the media, very loosely. Sure. Um, And, you know, there's people that my dad's never going to trust the New York Times. Just period. Yeah. Like, what do, you, what do you do with people like that that are, especially because a lot of the people that are not going to trust these sources are some of the people that are most vulnerable to this disease? Yeah. I mean, that's really hard. Um, that's not a question I know a good answer to. Um, I, I wish I did. I think, um, you know, 
the I would say that if to, to folks who are like, who have a problem with big institutional um, news outlets like the Times, I would just say locate somebody at like, I would say locate somebody at an outlet that feels trustworthy to you and, and follow the individual's reporting and and I, I do think that there are I mean there the Times and the Washington Post and the um, the Wall Street Journal and so forth, which I think is a good um, thing to to recommend to people who um, sort of feel like the Times is enacting its liberal agenda or whatever. You know, big major daily newspapers are going to have reputable public health reporters. And those people will be worth, um, it'll be worth learning their name and seeing what they're saying. Uh, It'll be worth seeing what they're doing on social media. The problem comes when you get people who, you know, invested in PayPal when it was still a startup uh, who, who think that they can save the world now. Or when um, you have an economist giving you health advice. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, that's, that's a lot of it. I mean, I think even economists have to go to school, but the, <laughs> the, 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 the sort of rich tech bro guys who go on medium and tell everybody how they think the world should work or a hazard to our society. Yeah. But, uh, and I, I think the most important thing is to know the difference between reporting and opinion, which is really hard because everything's sort of atomized on Twitter. You know, you yeah, get define a, a that to, for you us. get a, well, so you, the, the opinion pages are completely separate from the editorial pages at every major newspaper worth anything. And when you see something that says, you know, if generally speaking, if the author's name comes up in the headline, then it's not reporting. But the, I mean, you often, you have to look anyway, you you know, you have to say, Oh, is this an opinion column? Is this being written by somebody who's paid to like, look at politics and come up with a clever phrase about them? Um, Because those folks have a lot of utility when it comes to like figuring out how to think but in terms of figuring out what to think they were the last people we should be going to <laughs> and so there's a lot of um if you if you make sure that you're seeing something you know from the news pages of the paper and then it'll have a section name it'll say arts or um you know politics or health or whatever then I think you ha- you stand a better chance of coming across good information because there's a se- there's just a sense among way too many opinion editors that putting opinion at the top of the article in very small letters is an excuse to say absolutely anything you want. Right. And that that I think is part of the reason that people don't trust the media is that there's um they're just big sections of the paper devoted to people making things up or, you know, telling lies that support a particular political position. And that's confusing and requires you to devote more time than you probably ought to, to understanding what actually comports with measurable reality in the, in the paper that you're paying, you know, $4 of your only, you know, bank account to read. Um, So I have a lot of sympathy for people who don't trust the media, but I also think that there are ways to, comb through the media for people who are acting in good faith and without any kind of a political um, sort of uh, uh, motive. But uh, it's also hard because I feel like the people who 
um, are most opposed to, you know, biased news tend to tend to put their faith in the worst possible um, organizations. I, I do think anybody who's like everybody, I think any news organization that says all news is biased, we're just biased and tell you how we're biased. Like that is just really the mark of somebody that is trying to mislead you and steal from you. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the thing that always just makes me crazy about, you know, reading conservative media is the, there's the sense that like, Oh, well, we're, we're just the ones who admit that we're, you know, stretching the truth. Well, right. I don't, I don't think that you're, that they're like self definitions are any more honest than anyone else's. So if they're admitting that they stretch the truth, that suggests that they're just telling enormous whoppers all the time <laughs> rather, <laughs> rather than these sort of annoying little lies that get, um, you know, get you in trouble at, uh, at, at legitimate newspapers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's hard to tell with all the hysteria sometimes too for people what is what is real and what isn't cuz I mean yeah. especially you know I'm I always just say just don't watch TV just don't watch the TV news. Yeah, I mean TV news is 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 awful. There's there's no good TV news. Yeah. <laughs> um 60 minutes is okay. Um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the 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 rest of it's horrible trash. But uh but also, you know, the you know tv news comes to you in a sort of a reliable way and the internet just feels like the wild west to a lot of people i think yeah yeah <sighs> yeah but. and do and i mean i i'm biased on this because i am an individual you know news guy but i i do think it's worth reiterating follow people don't follow organizations to, you yeah. know find a good public health reporter and be like this is my guy i'm gonna listen to what he says anthony fauci is such a great example of that you know mm -hmm. he he's um he's a he works for the trump administration but he's also been working in public health for the cdc since the aids crisis yeah you know, he um he, he was like uh, he and like Larry Kramer locked horns over um, the Reagan administrations or over the um, I guess the maybe the Bush or the Clinton administration's um, lack of uh, of uh, response to AIDS. It might have been Reagan. Good grief. Yeah, he's been doing it a long time. Yeah. But uh, that's really, you know, people like that are so valuable. Institutional knowledge is the like the thing that makes the New York times, the New York times, yeah. you know, with, without that, I mean, if you want to see, if you want to see like a negative example, think about Newsweek, like nobody good works at Newsweek anymore, <laughs> but they used to like right. Michael is, I believe Michael is used to work for Newsweek. And, um, but now he works for Yahoo news. Like Yahoo news already sounds like a joke, but their national security desk is now, you know, unparalleled because they have this guy who, you know, made his bones writing some of the best NatSec, NatSec reporting in the world and helped that magazine build its brand. Yeah. yeah. There's places like that that are really serve as a good reminder that your, you know, publications are only as good as the, you know, staff on the masthead. Yeah. So find, find, find one of those guys and, uh, and, or girls and, and stick with them. Yeah. No, that's, that's good advice. That was Sam Thielman, the editor at the Tau Center. I recommend following him on his Twitter, at Sam Thielman. 
The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. For 41 years, The Marketplace has been a go-to source for farm-to-table food in Asheville. And while they may be closed due to the coronavirus lockdown, gift cards are still available at their webpage or at AshevilleStrong.com. Close your eyes, listen to your heart beat now. What have you become?
Dirty Spoon is a production of Dirty Spoon Media. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and I'm the editor-in-chief. I produce the show, and I write and record some of the original music. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources the stories, and handles our website and marketing. Music in this episode by Clem Snide, Phoebe Bridgers, Ethan Gruska, and Yael Naim. Head over to our webpage to stream back episodes of the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour, check out the original artwork from our incredible artists, and to support us on our Patreon at dirty-spoon.com, or subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts by searching for the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. There, we are also doing our series Home Fried, which updates every Tuesday, Thursday, and occasionally on Saturdays to keep you informed and entertained during the coronavirus lockdown. We'll be right back here next month on WPVMLP with an entirely new episode of the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour, always bringing you stories from the people who shape what we consume. Be safe. John Prine was diagnosed with COVID-19 just this week. I think it would be a good way to exit this show with one of his tunes. stairs through the back door screen 
And all the news just repeats itself Like some forgotten dream That we've both seen Someday I'll go and call up Rudy We work together at the factory What could I say if he asked what's new? Nothing what's with you, nothing much to do. You know that old trees just grow stronger, and old rivers grow wilder. Just grow lonesome Waiting for someone to say Hello in there So if you're walking Down the street sometime Spot some hollow Ancient eyes Don't just pass them by and stare As if you didn't care 